What a week. It's as if too much happened. Too much turkey, too much shopping, and way too many of our thoughts invested on a little ball game. But I'm going to keep with that theme, that theme of excess. Today we're going to be talking about something really excessive, the excess grace that's been poured out for you. Now we're still in the Resilient Life series. We've been talking about the idea of bouncing back in the midst of suffering. And the message of the Resilient Life is perhaps more urgent today than it's been in recent memory as we turn on the news. And we're reminded of just how fallen this place really is. So if we're to survive and somehow thrive in this fallen place, we must learn the art of suffering graciously. Yes, church, we must learn to suffer with grace. Not, grace not as a byproduct, but grace as a possession lodged deep within our hearts. We must put grace at the forefront of our minds if we're truly going to be resilient. We're still in 2 Corinthians today. We pick it up in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We can go ahead and put it up. Uh, you guys can turn there if you'd like. On the surface, this passage is about generosity, giving. But on a much more deeper and foundational level, it's about grace. You see, oftentimes we're moved to generosity when we're most aware of what we've been given. We're wired this way. It's even featured in the very fabric of our holiday calendar. Think about it. Thanksgiving comes before Christmas. Thanksgiving, the day when we're called to be most aware of what we have and we're moved to give thanks, precedes Christmas. It comes before the season of giving. Grace is the starting point, and it leads us to joy, which moves us to give. Here's where we're going. After a little background on the passage, I'm going to talk about what it looks like to suffer graciously. And then I'm going to show you how it's possible. I'll give you some points along the way. Here they are. Grace is the foundation for the resilient life. Grace expands the re resilient life. Grace completes the resilient life. And grace magnifies the resilient life. To the background. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's discussing the subject of generous giving. Specifically, he's talking about the collection, the offering. Now, the time of this letter, the area surrounding Jerusalem and Judea was mired in the midst of a very intense famine. And it had been in that famine for years. That famine inflicted unrivaled poverty and need amongst the believers in Jerusalem. So Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was organizing a collection amongst the churches that he planted in Greece. He asked them for money to help relieve the suffering that was going on in Jerusalem. Now, if you track through Paul's letters... You'll notice that he's quick to use examples of his own conduct and examples from elsewhere within the church to motivate his audience to take action. Now, the Corinthian church is Paul's audience here. They are not who he celebrates. Instead, he gave the Corinthians two examples to follow of generous giving. He gives them the Macedonian church, and he gives them Christ. Now, Macedonia was a Roman province located in northern Greece, the church there was comprised of some of the churches that Paul had planted, that in Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. Now, the Corinthians, they were located to the southern province of Achaia. And there was a bit of a political rivalry between the north and the south, as the Corinthians to the south loved to look at the Macedonians and refer to them as the barbaric north. So Paul pushed a button that he knew would strike a chord with the Corinthians, the rivalry button. Can anybody relate to that this morning? Rivalry. And isn't it silly that we can? But Paul knew that it would cut to the quick of the Corinthians 
if he used the Macedonians as an example for them to follow. And so he did. Here's their example. The Macedonian believers suffered because of their faith. In fact, in Acts 16 and 17, it tells it. Paul writes, or the scripture tells us that the Christians there were attacked, they were sued, stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail because they believed in Jesus. But despite their suffering, they remained steadfast and they contributed to the collection. So get this, even though their material welfare was deteriorating, their spiritual welfare was increasing. And Paul celebrated that example to demonstrate their resiliency. While they suffered, grace abounded, and he wanted that same resiliency to take hold in Corinth. We pick up the passage in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. This is what it looks like to suffer graciously. This is what the resilient life looks like. Let's read. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that my words would be your words and that you would use them to start a movement in this place. I pray that we would become a more generous church, that our relationships would be characterized by cheerful giving, that we would be known by the grace that you've given us. Today, I pray that our love would be put into action from this community to the ends of the earth. Amen. Why do you give? If you don't give, why not? You thought about it. Have you thought about it? These questions are really, really important because the answers to them reveal what you value. And they may just even speak to your future and where you find your security. So do you know grace, true, genuine, authentic grace? If you do, then you have the key to bouncing back in the midst of your present suffering. And with that key, you can unlock the door to your past and say with confidence, I am loved in spite of the trash. Then you can take the trash and throw it away. You see, it's that kind of grace that prompts generosity and giving. Do you know it? Do you know grace? Church, the resilient life is a generous life. It's a life that gives because it's a life that's infected with grace. Let's look at the role that grace plays in the resilient life. First, grace is the foundation of the resilient life. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Grace is why we give. 
That's what Paul's saying here. In fact, he leads off this topic, this topic of generous giving by telling the Corinthians that he wants them to know something. Right there in verse 1, he says, I want you to know the grace of God. So what is this grace that he's talking about? The word Paul uses is charis. It literally means the loving kindness and favor of God, and it conveys an idea of divine influence upon the heart, which reflects outward and generosity. It's a popular word in Paul's letters. In fact, Paul uses it 100 out of the 154 times that the word is featured in the New Testament. So charis was an extremely big deal to Paul, and I'll tell you why. He knew grace deeply. He knew it down to his soul. You see, before Paul became the apostle, he was Saul, the Christian persecutor. And in fact, Jesus Christ himself gave him that title on the road to Damascus when he asked him that penetrating question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was a bad dude, and Paul remembered it, so he felt the redemption from it very deeply. And when God turned Paul's world upside down through immeasurable grace, Paul gave his life to turn this world upside down. Church, Paul knew grace very well. And this is what he wanted the Corinthians to think about, this life-transforming grace. So he pointed them to the Macedonian church where grace had already manifested itself in a most unusual way. Look at them. The Macedonians were... They had every reason to be sorrowful. They were severely afflicted, but they rejoiced. They were in extreme poverty, but they overflowed in wealth. How was this possible? Only by the grace of God. You see, God's charis grace had already been given to them. So the peculiar way that the Macedonians displayed God's grace was through their generosity. While they had nothing, they had everything that mattered. So their possessions didn't matter, and they gave. You see, their generosity was not of their own doing. It was the work of grace in their hearts. And look at what, it, look at what made them so abundantly joyful. We need to know that it was not because God had prospered them materially. He hadn't. They were severely afflicted and in extreme poverty, yet they still gave. The Macedonians understood the art of suffering graciously. They were resilient because their lives were founded upon grace. So let me ask you, do you know grace? Now my son, he's got this toy that he loves. You might have had something similar, or your kids might have had it, but it, it kind of looks like a clock. It's got a little hand in the center and a lever that you pull on the side. But rather than numbers around the perimeter, it's got various farm animals. And when you pull the lever, the hand spins. And when the hand stops, it makes the noise of the farm animal that it stops on. Oink, oink for the pig, nay, nay for the horse, cock-a-doodle-doo -doo for the rooster, and so forth. The funny thing is, my son doesn't like to waste time going at the lever. He goes straight to the hand, straight to the hand. He'll scratch at it. He'll get it spinning pretty good on his own until it stops, until it stops and he hears the noise that he wants to hear, which usually for him is nay, nay. He loves the horse. But... I'll tell you, when it stops on that noise, it triggers a response in him. It sends him to joy. And he'll laugh and laugh and laugh, and he'll look up at me to make sure that his father is laughing with him. And laughing together with his daddy, he has a ball. Man, he loves the results of the hand. And as I watch him play with the toy, it occurs to me that we're kind of just like that. 
We seek the hand's benefits while we tend to forget that we need to be seeking the hand itself. We love the benefits of following him and we forget that we're called to the cross to pick it up daily. In fact, we're called to a life that involves suffering. So I wonder, are we worshiping his benefits or are we worshiping him? The benefits of God's hand are wonderful for sure, but we must remember that we only have access to them by seeking him first. God is not a slot machine. We don't pull down a lever and out comes an abundance of material prosperity. No, the truth of the matter is we suffer. I know this to be true because the Bible is a grace-saturated letter written to a suffering people in the midst of a fallen world. Suffering is real and it stinks, but I can tell you that when I have chosen to think on the grace that I've been given, when I elevate the possession that's lodged deep within my heart, suffering proves fleeting. It proves, as Paul writes, to be light and momentary. And many times I do have to make a conscious decision to think on the grace that I've been given because it was neither easy nor my natural response. Now, that doesn't minimize the pain or negate the suffering. Suffering still stinks, but a change of our minds from our outward circumstances to what we have inside of us will move us to joy, to wealth, and to generosity. And you want to know the cool thing about it? It's not our doing. It's only by the grace of God. You see, if resiliency were up to me, I'd face up to affliction cautiously, timidly even, You see, if bouncing back in the midst of suffering were up to me, I'd I'd pull back. I'd shirk back. I'd save all that I could as if I could somehow protect my future in a bank. But that is not God's economy. He gave freely so that joy would well up in our hearts and overflow in a wealth of generosity. Church, suffering is part of the deal. Through various forms of poverty and affliction, we suffer. But we can bounce back. What if you surrender to it? What if you surrender to grace and let it permeate your heart? Would it change anything for you? Would it change how you viewed all that you've been given? Maybe you haven't been given very much, but could you see yourself as wealthy? Maybe you've been given a lot, but could it change what you do with all of it? Do you want to know why we give? We give because we were first given to. To be resilient... To truly bounce back in the face of suffering, suffering, grace must be at the foundation of our lives. And that brings me to the next point, because from that foundation, grace expands the resilient life. Look at verses 3 through 5. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul's saying that the Macedonian joy in God's grace is what moved them beyond themselves. It's this joy that overflowed to meet the needs of others. So the joy and the grace that Paul celebrates here is not only vertical, but it's horizontal as well. The generous action of the Macedonians revealed itself in love to God and to others. Look at their giving. Paul highlights several unique characteristics of their generosity. They gave beyond their means. 
So their giving was sacrificial. They gave of their own accord. So their giving was willing. They gave begging earnestly. So their giving was eager. And most importantly, they gave themselves first to the Lord. So their giving was spiritual. And there, Paul means that there was first an all-out surrender of their lives to Christ. Then they gave themselves to others as they helped with the collection. Church, the resilient life, it's a life that's led by the Spirit. Are you following? Ben and Katie Cloyd lead a group, and they themselves have been candidates for help. Stuff like yard work and child care. Now, Ben's probably going to chide me after this, but I love Ben Cloyd. I love him a lot, and I admire him very deeply. Their group is championing generosity as we speak. And truthfully, I didn't expect it. You see, child care is an issue for their group. Their beautiful little girl, Sophia, requires a little special attention. So additional babysitters are required. And as I've thought about their group in the past, I've thought to myself, wouldn't it be awesome if they served themselves? Wouldn't it be cool if they figured out how to make child care work for Sophia and the rest of the little ones running around in their group. Well, with a little help from their friends, they did that and much, much more. I mentioned that they're championing generosity. They've taken the idea of our Christmas store, which Daniel talked about earlier, and they've added to it. They're not only giving toys to kids in our community, they're arranging for meals as well. You see, they've examined the grace that's inside their group, and they've learned that They've got a gift. They've got a little connection to a local restaurant right in their group. Hunter Evans works right down the street at Lou's Self-Serve. And they're leveraging that grace for others as they figure out how to provide Christmas meals for those in need. They are making an impact in this community. And they give not as I had expected. So I'm thinking, what, what is it that we expect? If we know grace, what should we expect? When we join together and submit to Christ as a body of believers, we can do things that will blow the minds of this community. Look, church, Paul says, they gave not as I had expected. When we think on the grace that's been given to us rather than what we're going through, our resiliency will move us way beyond ourselves. Never underestimate the power of a community that's focused together on others. Because a community that's focused on others together, on things beyond themselves, can stretch far beyond their own power and literally change the world. What do we expect? What do we expect when we circle up in our community groups? We should expect great things. I'm telling you, we should because the gospel calls us outside of ourselves. You see, when we give ourselves first to the Lord, giving becomes really an easy thing to do. He becomes our all and our everything, and everything else that we have is secondary. So we can give. We begin to understand that everything that we have was given to us in the first place. Grace expands the resilient life as it prompts us to think beyond ourselves. And it's the expansion of that grace that eventually completes the resilient life. Look at verses 6 and 7. We urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul's still referencing the Macedonian generosity, which he wants the Corinthians to excel at. And once again, we see that word charis. Twice it appears in the exact same phrase, once in verse 6 and once in verse 7. 
It looks like this, this act of grace. Now, some translations render the phrase in verse 7 this way, excel in this grace of giving. So the picture that Paul wants the Corinthians to get here is that giving is the very essence of grace. Grace is what to we're, we're, we're to excel at. We're to be good at giving, and this has a way of completing the resilient life. Now, Paul had already written to the Corinthians of the need to collect money for the church in Jerusalem. He did so in his first letter. And the Corinthians, they responded to him with remarkably good intentions. But for one reason or another, their good intentions were not put into action. So Paul writes again to call them out on it here. You see, the Corinthians were gifted. It was a very gifted church. In fact, Paul even acknowledged how they excelled in many things here. But there's one thing they lacked. They lack the grace of giving. This was so important to Paul that he sent Titus to Corinth, instructing him that he should see to it that their good intentions were put into action. And eventually, the Corinthian giving became a success, and it was grace that brought it to completion. Are you good at giving? Now, I'm a baseball guy. When I was announced here, Robert said that I'm on a record. Well, it's not batting average, I can tell you. It was getting hit by pitches. But um, I'm not as smart as I look. But uh, 300 is a good batting average. It's kind of what you shoot for. So three base hits out of every 10 is good. Easy enough, right? Three out of 10. Well, hard. Very difficult. For me, I would, um, there were days when I couldn't do anything right. Not one thing. I would strike out. I would pop up to the catcher. The home runs that I hit would be those in the silo right up to the catcher. And um, I'd get into slumps. Uh, And slumps made me feel bad. You see, I was letting the team down, making all those unproductive outs. So when when I'd get into a slump, here's what I would do. First, I would have to admit that I was, in fact, in a slump. I'd say to myself, okay, you're in a slump. Something's wrong with you. You need to change something. Then, With that knowledge, I would try to do the easiest thing imaginable, something I'd done thousands of times, something that I could probably do with my eyes closed. i just try to hit the ball to the pitcher. 60 feet, 6 inches in front of my face is where i try to hit. And as I focused on that one small thing, and that thing only, I'd find that I'd mess up, and I'd hit the ball past the pitcher for a single up the middle. But I wouldn't just do this one time either. I would do it again and again until I got comfortable with that one small thing. Then, once I got to a level of comfort, I'd start adding steps. I'd start thinking about the strike count, the positioning of the defense, situations how certain pitchers like to pitch me, and I'd start adding to my plate. You see, once I got good at the small thing, the small simple thing, I could start adding. And maybe you find yourself in a slump today, a bit of a slump of generosity. Maybe you're so hung up on what you give or you don't give or you don't get enough, whatever, and you freeze. So you remain in the slump. You know deep down that you've been given to and that you're asked to give. But every time the collection's passed, you pass it up. If that's you, let me just encourage you right there. Admit that you're in a slump, that you need to change something. Set a very small goal. And do it again and again until you get comfortable with it. And then add to the plate. 
Church, the gospel calls us beyond ourselves. The grace that we've been given expands us until we're complete. And it's the gospel that brings me to the last point. Grace magnifies the resilient life. Look at verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Grace is who we give. Just in case the Macedonian example wasn't enough to encourage the Corinthians in the one thing that they lacked, Paul gave them Christ. He gave them the most resilient life that ever lived. And look how he begins in verse 8. I love it. He didn't order them, and he didn't guilt them into it. He says this not as a command, because true generosity can't be compelled. It can only be produced by God. You see, if the Corinthian church gave like the Macedonians as a result only of what Paul had ordered them to do, it proved only one thing, that they were good at following instructions. But that's forced. That's not grace in action. Grace is freely given, and grace is the catalyst to generosity. Paul said, look no further than the example of Jesus Christ. How generous was he? He gave all he had. Look, Paul says Christ was rich. When? When was he rich? He certainly wasn't rich when he was born in a humble stable. He certainly wasn't rich when he made the rounds of ministry virtually homeless. And he certainly wasn't rich when he emptied himself at the cross. So when was Jesus rich? Always. He was always rich because he existed in eternity. He dwelled with the Father in eternity even before there was ever a beginning. And then comes a startling conjunction, yet. Yet he became poor for our sakes so that we could become rich because of his poverty. Look at the amazing truth of the gospel here. We are rich because of his poverty. He is the reason for our wealth. He is the source of our grace. He is the resource that we tap into for generosity. Jesus is who we give. Now, about a month ago, my family and I retreated to a quiet spot at the foothills of the Appalachians. And honestly, I didn't really want to go. I had some work to catch up on, and I really couldn't afford to give a weekend away. I also didn't want to go because it was going to cost me some money. I was going to have to buy gas, you know, a place to stay. Of course, souvenirs. It was going to be expensive. But Kristen really wanted to go. And deep down, I knew that we could all benefit from a little unplugging of all the devices. We needed to get still, so we went. We left late on a Wednesday night. We split the trip up, went halfway. The next morning, we woke up and we were headed to our car with our boy, my little boy. And as we were making our way to the vehicle, uh, I saw a man leaning on the side of our hotel building. And I really didn't have a whole lot of time. I wanted to get where I was going, but um, I didn't have time to stop and talk to him. But I made that fatal mistake of meeting his eyes. You know, I couldn't turn back when you meet his eyes. i got to keep going. So on I went. I marched forward. And as I approached the man, he looks at my little boy, and he smiles real big, and he says, Congratulations. Congratulations. Now, my son, you got to know my son, he's way past the point where Chris and I typically get congratulated for the gift of a new child. 
He's a year and a half, about 35 pounds, running, getting in trouble, talking up a storm. So when Chris and I heard congratulations from the man, we were like, what the heck was that? How awkward was that? But as we drove away, I couldn't get it out of my head. And it finally hit me. I have every reason to be congratulated. I mean, I have it all. A loving and supportive wife, a beautiful son, food, shelter, clothing, transportation, tr- transportation, and then some. I got it all, and I don't deserve any of it. All of that stuff is way too good for me. That awkward congratulations reminded me of the grace that I've been given, that everything that I have has been supplied by someone else. And here's the rest of the story. When we got to that little mountain town, something changed in me. You see, five hours earlier, I still didn't want to go. I was still counting what it would cost me. But when we got to that town, I was Mr. Generosity. I went around that town greeting everyone with smiles and kindness. I was so overjoyed of what I had been given that I was moved to share grace, Christ, with another. I prayed over a man and his business. That's not something I do very often. You might be saying, well, you're a pastor. It kind of comes with the job description. Maybe so, but I don't. Truth of the matter is, I don't. But I asked Christ into his life, and I asked God to bless his business. I don't know if he accepted. Maybe I'll never know. But I do know that before we left that town, that man found me, and he gave me something from his business for free. So I wonder, I wonder if he didn't experience a little grace himself. I wonder if the grace that he had experience didn't just move him to give some stuff away too. Church, the gospel pushes us deeper into our pockets as we're reminded of just how deeply God went into his. So when you sit down to give, don't sit down with a calculator. Sit down with the cross of Christ. As the gospel takes root in our lives, it affects how we view wealth. We think When we think on Christ's sacrificial love for us, that he gave up everything so we could inherit the riches of his kingdom, we start to think differently about what we have. When we see Christ, we become a people that are both joyful and generous. This understanding is liberating, too. When we think on the riches that we've already received in Christ, our concerns over money melt away. We're moved to invest in the kingdom. Church, the message today brings salvation into the realm of money, both sides of money, wealth and poverty. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking about your money problems. You don't have, so you don't give. You're behind, so you can't give. Whatever. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, the more money, more problem spectrum. I know that's real, too. Church, you don't have to worry about money anymore. The cross of Christ is more secure than any bank, investment portfolio, or insurance policy. You don't even have to envy the wealth of others. Because the price that Jesus paid gives you a status that money can't buy. So do you want to be resilient? Do you want to learn how to bounce back in the midst of your suffering? Do you want to learn the art of suffering graciously? Look no further than Christ. He's the example to follow. He is the key that allows us to bounce back no matter the trash that's going on. Do you know him? Do you know the most resilient life that's ever lived? If you do, then think on his costly 
grace. Think about what you have and how much it costs to secure it. If you don't know him, he stands knocking at the door, calling out to you with his hands, always open, always extending out to you, and always with the holes that demonstrate how much grace costs. Take his hand and let him be your savior. Church, if you want to be truly resilient to learn how to suffer graciously, then let, great, let the grace of God be the foundation of your life. Let it expand you beyond yourself. Let it complete you into the day of Christ. And let what you've been given magnify the most resilient life that's ever lived.